Hey, Changemakers, welcome back to the Engage for Good podcast. I'm your host, Allie Murphy. Today marks the start of something really exciting. It's the start of our three-part leadership series where we'll share tips, insights, and stories from three social impact leaders across the business and nonprofit landscape. First up in today's episode is Artis Stevens, president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. Next week, you'll hear from Kevin Martinez, VP of Corporate Citizenship at ESPN. And last but certainly not least is an episode with Julie Breckenkamp, Vice President of National Strategic Partnerships at Children's Miracle Network Hospitals. We'll weave together their leadership journeys, advice to you, our listeners, mistakes they've made and what they've learned from them, how they take care of their well-being and support their teams, and what's on the horizon in the year ahead. But let's go back to today's guest for just a moment. As president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, Artist brings 25 years of leadership in the positive youth development sector. With a diverse background in bridging innovative marketing, fundraising, and program strategies, he's generated awareness and revenue to drive greater impact for youth, families, and communities in need. His passion for building purpose-driven brands and cultivating talent has inspired partnerships with more than 60 of the most well-known brands in the country. He's also the world's best dad, a husband, father, coach, and leader. In today's episode, we'll dive into his background, who he is inside and outside of work, and what you can all learn from his journey. Artists and Big Brothers Big Sisters of America are also the recipient of the 2023 Golden Halo Award for Nonprofits, which is our highest honor for companies and causes engaged in activities that build a better world and the bottom line. In today's episode, we'll explore Artis's leadership journey and what he's learned along the way, how to gain leadership buy-in and how he did it in the past, the trends CSR and social impact pros should be paying attention to, his advice for those looking to grow in their careers, what he'll be talking about at EFG 2023 in May, come join us, the importance of leading with empathy and a whole bunch more. And with that, let's get started. Hey, artists, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Allie, pleasure to be on with you. I'm excited to have you here. I had you on, I think for the last time was when you had just hit a year with Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. So now you're over your two-year anniversary, and I'm excited to talk about different things. So before we dive in too far, we're all more than what we do for work. So tell us a little bit about the personal and the professional journey that led you to become the president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I, I will I will start here, right? Because uh, everything for me so centers and, and revolves around family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always talk about what, what I am. I, I, I always call. I, I've been voted uh, for. Uh, what, 15 straight years as world's best dad, right? Now, <laughs> by, by my family. So uh, it's a little bit of a biased panel, I would say. But, I don't know. It might be It might be uh, not biased, maybe. Yeah, there you go. You, you can go for that. But uh, uh, my story is really, really family, right? I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest kid of a big family. I always tell people that, you know, my mom and my dad always taught us, you know, we didn't have a lot when we were growing up. But they always taught us that, uh even though we were modest in means, we were rich in relationships, right? So relationships were always our currency, always had a village, a community of people that were around me. Um, and that inspired me uh, to have a journey in my life that I had extended family. 
people who were related by blood, but people who were not related uh, to me in that way, but were also family. And it helped to inspire me to become the first of my, my family to go to college, uh, to graduate. And every point, every step that I would think of, any career decision, any place in my life, big personal decisions, small things, there's always been guys, there's always been mentors uh, in my life. So it's always been a, a thing that's been present um, and connected for me. Uh, so my journey in the, the youth empowerment, youth development, youth mentorship field is not one by chance, right? It's really intentional because it's really my lived experience. Uh, and I'm fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to lead in organizations over a 25 year period that's really been about connecting young people with positive relationships. Uh, in their lives. And it was about two years ago where, you know, I was uh, working as the CMO of 4-H uh, at the time. And gosh, I mean, I mean, think about two years ago, right? The middle of the pandemic. Oh my gosh. Right? All these things going Ooh. on. Yeah. So you got schools closing, middle of the pandemic, um, social uh, injustices, headlines, you know, all across media, et cetera. And then um, something, a name, uh, is, is what really, I guess, hit home for me. And it was the name Ahmad Aubrey. Uh, mm. And for, for those who are listening, Ahmad Aubrey uh, was murdered in, on the streets of Brunswick, Georgia for being Black, right? And that hit home with me. Yes, there were a lot of names. There's been a lot of tragedy uh, in, in, in our society when it, when it comes to this type of senseless violence and, and hate. But that name hit home with me so much because he was from my hometown, right? I grew up in Brunswick, Georgia. The street he was murdered on is the street I walked on many times as a kid, right? So there was a certain connection for me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my dad was in ministry and I sort of always walked the path. And he always uh, told me this idea about, hey, follow your own ministry. Um, and what hit me at that time is I was... I felt like I was following my ministry and the work that I had done in the past 25 years. The question for me was, was I doing enough? Um, okay. and, and when that happened, it really called that in question. And after that alley, it wasn't too long after Big Brothers Big Sisters reached out and I saw myself and I saw my ministry in this organization. I love all of these stories. Okay, there, there are so many pieces that we can dive into. And I think we're going to come back and kind of weave things throughout. One of the biggest questions that I like to ask or yeah, it is one of my favorite questions, is that we all make mistakes and we learn lessons along the way. You hear all the time that failure is like first attempt in learning, but so often people have a hard time sharing their failures and their mistakes. So I want to know, what is one of yours? What is one of your favorite failures or mistakes, lessons learned? And what did you learn from it that you still apply today? Yeah, um, <laughs> there are quite a few. <laughs> well, maybe you can share two, whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, you know, one of the one of the the, the failures that I, that I often uh, talk about is the idea of um, and I always talk to this about folks who are starting their careers. Right. Mm -hmm. When I started my career, um, I thought I was going to law school. Right. And and I it's had a little every, different. Yeah, it was, it was very different. Um, and I was so I will tell you, Ali, I was so like like focus on the idea of everything having to be that, right? Everything, every step that I had taken, I had everything planned out. Um, you know, there was no way you could tell me that's not what I was going to do. Um, <laughs> so uh, it, everything was so prescriptive, right? I was, was an incredibly prescriptive person. 
um, at that point in time in my, in my life. Um, and it was a mentor, you know, who I met and, and shared with me, hey, understand you want to do this, but you have to understand, is that truly your calling or is that something that you just put in your mind, right? So the idea of were you truly following your passion or were you following what the mold should tell you what you should right. be? Right. What society very, says is success, et yeah, cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for me growing up, you know, that was the idea. Okay, well, if I can go and be an attorney and I can be a lawyer, I can do all these types of things. But it wasn't my passion, right? It was what I thought I was supposed to do, right? Um, and it, it's the difference between following something that your your passion, your heart tells you that you're intended to do or that you really love doing that can empower you to be successful versus staying and doing something that you're feeling like you're doing for, you know, a reason that's not really your own, right? And that was one of the big learnings uh, that I had to take early on. A second one I will tell you was uh, even starting this role, right, in the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll put this in like real terms because I think everybody's going through it. Uh, one of the, the big decisions that I had to make uh, early on was around this idea of telecommuting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people working from home and, and the, the space that they have and the opportunity they get. So um, one thing was like our, our a policy that we've had built in for years, where after our big national conference, you know, people, it wasn't anything that was in, on paper, but it was that people would get an opportunity to sort of take a, take a week off. Right. And okay. I, I'll never forget when I came in, I was just sort of like, hey, well, we already give a whole bunch of time off. Why are we sort of doing something that's not like structural and to, to paper uh, and not on paper? And I was like, well, this doesn't really make sense. Right. And I'm just thinking more X's and O's. Yep. What I yep. wasn't really thinking about was what people were going through at the mm-hmm. time. Right. Um, and I use that as as a as a uh, example, because it's really about empathy. Right. And. It, it's the the idea of being an you know a leader with empathy and leading with empathy empathy not to sort of see everything through your own lens and your own eyes and I always ensure that I'm doing a couple of things one I'm holding myself accountable and checking myself to ensure that I'm leading with a level of empathy and, and lens and the other thing that I'm empowering the people around me to ensure that they are we're holding each other accountable right when it comes to things like that so that we're seeing the perspective of other people uh, as we make decisions. So those are a couple of things I would say. The rigid, you know, the rigidity of what you're supposed to do and then a, a level of empathy, I think, leading as a leader. So I'm curious, actually, I'm curious on both of them. For the first one, you mentioned this mentor saying, is this what you should be doing or is this really a passion of yours? Was that a kind of defining moment for you when you started to shift your thinking? Or were you a little bit more like, hesitant to take that feedback in i was hesitant and he did something (laughs) okay what he did did was he took me to a public housing community um Mm. and in that public housing community he asked me a question he said he took me to a playground he said what do you know about this playground uh and i laughed at him and i said this is the playground that i played in as a kid right and he told me he said hey if you really want to go to law school you can always go to law school but you don't always have an opportunity to come back to your hometown and transform your community, right? Um, I've got goosebumps. Yeah, well, it sold me, right? And it sold me in this way of what 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 it did for me is it hit home in the idea of who I really was, right? And it unstripped mm-hmm. who I really was. And it was something that 
I wasn't at the time vulnerable enough to embrace, right? Because okay. I, was, I embraced the idea of what I wanted, that I thought I wanted to be, and not as much as the idea of who I was. And who I was was the idea of growing more into that. And that was really who I, the idea of becoming something more was really being anchored into who you are, your own values, what's important to you, what do you want to do? Um, versus being forced into something else. So it's the sense of force-fitting yourself into something or truly finding what you're comfortable, what you're good at, what you're best at in the world and allowing yourself to walk that journey. Okay, so the other piece that I was curious about is you were talking about empathy. And I was actually reading an article this morning and one yesterday, and the sources are not in my head right now, but they talk about the most important trait of a successful manager right now is empathy. And so this one really hit home for me. And I'm curious, how did you get from this this place of the telecommuting, the this doesn't make sense, the X's and O's to either catching yourself or maybe someone else helped catch you to then transition more into the empathetic version? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a constant reminder, right? Mm-hmm. I think as leaders, we're, we, we all get on the go, right? We all get on the go. We want to get the work done. We want to execute, want to create outcomes. And it's all right. for good reason. It's all good intention, right? There, there's, I always tell people, there's not like bad, it's not like a good and bad in these situations. It's, it's just people trying to do things that they feel right. But in sometimes taking those steps, we lose sight, right? We lose sight of ourselves. And most importantly, we lose sight sometimes of the experience that other people are going through. So it's the constant reminders of that. But I will tell you one of the biggest things that, that continuously keeps, keeps me in check, and I told you about in the very beginning, family, right? Where, where I have a really good, um, I would say, test group, right? Mm-hmm. With my wife and with my kids, right? They are the ones that, you know, hold me accountable in ways. Uh, so when I'm talking to my wife and I'm saying, hey, here was a decision that I'm thinking about or that I made. And she gives me that look like nobody. <laughs> You're like, oh, I need to rethink this a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So it starts there. And then, then you know, what, what happened is over time, my team became more comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. You give me that. So when I first started, like you start as a CEO, you're a little bit in a bubble, right? And this is for any leader because people are still trying to figure you out. They're trying to figure out what can I say. You got to uh, build trust. You've got to build rapport. You got to get to know people. That's right. But that wasn't the case for my wife. My, my wife was just <laughs> like, nobody, this is not the way you do it. And, and she went straight in. And then it, it was like the idea of, okay, I, I have to make sure as I lead that I'm being more open, that I'm being more accessible. And to the, the question that you asked, there's a level of vulnerability as a leader that mm-hmm. you have to allow yourself to have with your team and with the people around you so that they're willing to be vulnerable as well. Because you can't build, you can't grow, you can't establish trust if people don't feel like they have access, connection, and a sense of who you are and vice versa. I love all of that. Okay, we could literally just talk about teams and vulnerability and that sort of leadership (laughs) for the entire episode, but I'm going to bring us back around. One of the biggest challenges our community faces and something that comes up on the podcast all the time is this idea of gaining leadership buy-in. How would you advise listeners to do this to get leadership buy-in? And was it the model that you followed before you became CEO? Yeah, um, it it has been. so, so here's here's my sort of philosophy on on approaching buy-in and leadership, mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as I think it's it's sort of connected to 
building teams as well. Um, and I always so start, when people ask me, what's my leadership style? I always start with the idea of being a coach, right? Um, and, and I mean that in every sense of the word and very specifically from a sports metaphor perspective, because you know, I always believe in a, in a few things, right? One is you have to have the right people on the field, right? And, and what that means is you have to ensure that you're, you're coaching people and supporting people in a way that they feel comfortable being on the field, that they feel comfortable about the rules and what the rules are, what the parameters are, that they understand the sense of what the playbook is and the vision for how the game is going to be played, right? And it's consistent, it's fair, it's equitable, right? And it creates opportunity and access for everybody to go on the field, that you open the door to bring new people in to the field and on in the game, right? So everyone feels like they have a chance uh, to play and that the field is even. You level the playing field, right? That people have that, that opportunity uh, to really feel uh, engaged. How you do that is people have to have voice at the table. Mm-hmm. And, and, and doing that is, is both organically, meaning that it's a style in a, in a relationship of asking questions and being open and being accessible. Um, it's also a process, right? And it's an intentional process of ensuring that there are structural steps that you take to ensure that in meetings, right? That it's not, you're not getting into meetings just to prescribe. You're getting into meetings really that say, here's the objective of the meeting. And if it's discussion-based, the idea is to have a discussion base and not come in with, here's the answer already, right. but come into what is it that we're trying to get to and ensuring that people are at the table. The second thing on that, that sense of having the level playing field is that you have to ensure that if you want to create a truly equitable organization, that equitable voices are at the table. And that doesn't right. mean, I say this all the time to my senior leaders, that if we're only having conversations and I'm only seeing senior leadership team members at the table, or in discussions, then I get, we got a problem. If our junior staff doesn't have the same level of access or some type of access to the same types of discussions and questions and say and buy-in, right, then we're not doing the things that we need to do right. And then it's structurally about the type of organization you build. So we work on what we call a hybrid-based organization, okay. which means that, that like the hierarchy that sometimes you see in organizations, we have formation, you, have, you know what teams you, you report into and those types of things. Where we've moved to and what we call our operating model is the idea that there can be hybrid teams that a senior leader can report into a team member with a junior staff person as the facilitator and the lead of that mm, team, right? Okay. Because it works more on task groups. So there are project assignments that allow us to work more effectively. And then there's a way, way that we train people, okay, how do you manage your project? How do you align with the project? I am not saying that's easy, Allie, by any <laughs> I wasn't going right? to think it was. It's not. But it's it's like any type of thing that you practice, right? Going back to the, the sports analogy, mm-hmm. right? Playing the game, you have to practice and you have to build muscle to be able to perfect it, to get it well, right? In the same way in the way that we work. Culture is not just the idea of everybody's happy and everybody's doing the right thing. Right. It is practice. It takes the idea in building culture to do the right things over and over again with accountability, with enhancement, with reinforcement, with positive affirmation. That's how you build culture, right? That's how you design, but you build culture through action, rehearsal, and practice. So if, if anyone's listening and asking about, hey, how do you get buy-in? Buy-in is the work, 
right? It's practice. It's hard work. It's the same back to that sports analogy, really performing on the field. And you set the, the, the parameters and the guy, but you allow the players to play. And then you provide the coaching and support for them to get better. So I think you're also talking about, if I'm using different words, kind of creating an ecosystem in which people can bring different ideas to the table and can work together. So you're creating you're creating an environment in which it is maybe I don't want to say easier to get buy-in because you still have to get approval, but you've you've created a process and a culture where those conversations can take place more naturally, perhaps. It, it is that, and here's the other kicker, right? And this is the one that most people are, including myself, right, are are afraid of. But you got to allow it, which is you got to allow people the opportunity to fail right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and not to get it right and see the idea of failing as learning, right? So, of course, we're not going to set someone up to have a major fail or right. something that's going to be disastrous to the organization. But to right? fail in safe scenarios so you can grow and learn. That's exactly it, right? Because if you give people an opportunity to innovate, to take that risk, to take chance and to know that there won't be some huge or stiff penalty about mm-hmm. their success or their leadership or their growth. That's how you're facilitating buy-in, right? That's how you're facilitating the idea that I'm going to come back to the table as someone who's in this organization because I feel safe. I feel empowered that I can bring ideas, I can buy in, I can use my voice and I won't feel penalized for it as well. So what are some of your big objectives in the coming year? Well, I think the biggest one is to take over the world. Oh, okay. (laughs) So world's best dad. And then we're going to go to take over the world. We're going to take take over the world for kids. So, so, so here's, here's the way that I I look at it. We are an organization that's been around for 119 years um, Mm -hmm. and an organization that has an an impeccable reputation, incredible mission, evidence-based programming. We're also an organization that's been hard hit since the pandemic and beyond. Right. And we are serving the populations that are most hard hit, right? So 60% of our kids uh, have a single-led household, 55% live in poverty, 25% have a family member that's incarcerated and paroled. What I always tell people is that none of those numbers define who our kids are. You know, Mm -hmm. what defines them is access, opportunity, empowerment, connection to positive relationships. Our goal in Big Brothers and Big Sisters is ensure that more kids have access to positive relationships that empower them to thrive and to be successful. So we have to ensure that we're growing and that we're growing our impact. So my focus and this organization's focus is centered on how do we continue to double, triple, quadruple the size of the kids that we're serving and the volunteers and the mentors who we connect with them. We also have to ensure that we're serving kids who are waiting right now for our services. We got 30,000 kids on our waiting list, right? So our bullseye is on how do we ensure that those kids are served adequately, effectively, uh, and with connection and with empowerment. And what we also know is that more kids in our country don't have sustained mentorship and that they're struggling with some of the biggest issues that's happened in our society today. Right now, fastest growing population that we're serving, a lot of people don't know, is 18 to 25, right? Oh, interesting. we serve 518 traditionally, but our fastest growing population is 18 to 25. And, the reason and you're talking about as mentees, not mentors. Is that right? As mentees. Yeah. That's okay. right. And the reason why that is, Al, is because kids are graduating or nearing graduation and they're asking, what's next? How do I navigate? How do I fill mm-hmm. a FAFSA form? How do I interview for that job? 
So where we're focusing even more, we're doubling down our efforts is on career mentoring, technology enhanced mentoring, so that kids are much more empowered to be able to navigate things for employment, for education, entrepreneurship, enlistment, right? How do we help kids to move on to the next stage of their lives? And at the same time, how do we help our country, companies, the workforce development, for employee engagement, for giving back to their community? When we do this, everybody wins. That's the model that we're creating, the value exchange that we're building. So you talked a bit about how you're expanding up to 25. You talked about career mentoring and some of the shifts that you're making. What are some of the other innovative approaches you're taking to meet the changing needs of your community? Yeah, so it, it is. I would look in and one of the biggest things that I would say that is really been a focus of ours. We've been known for one to one mentoring for right. over a century now. That's not going to change for us. It's always our core. It's always our bread and butter. But we have to meet families and communities where they are. And what we're seeing is that both kids and volunteers connect in different ways to mentorship. Think about how you grew up, Allie, right? Was there one mentor, right, that you looked at in your entire lifespan? Or did you have multiple ones? Did you sometimes, yeah, and did you sometimes have a group of people, right, that served you, provided guidance, provided support in different ways, right? That's how we all grow up. So in the same way, we have to think about how kids, right, engage and interact. So we're doing more stuff in around group mentoring, for example, mm-hmm. multiple mentors uh, or, you know, uh, multiple kids in a setting. For a lot of our communities, that's, that's safer. Uh, we serve a lot of young people that are in LGBTQ plus community, right? For them, sometimes there's a safer environment where they have a group where they can relate to and have those opportunities to connect, right? We know that even in that community, of the kids that we serve have come out to their bid and not come out to their parent, right? And and, and there's power in in those types of settings and those types of environments where kids feel safe, they feel included, they feel the opportunity. The other thing that I'll say that's really important about what we're doing is we're innovating in ways with peer-to-peer mentoring. Uh, And this is another space that's growing. And what that essentially means is that we are growing mentorship between young people to young people, right? So imagine a high school kid who's now mentoring a middle school kid, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine a middle school kid who's now mentoring an elementary kid, right? But that high school kid is, may also be getting mentored by a college kid, right? So the form of mentorship is so reciprocal, right? That's happening from one to the other to the other. And what happens in that situation? The young person receives, and they get mentorship, but they're also providing mentorship to someone else as well. So there's a contribution aspect that's part of it, as well as for a lot of high school kids, they're meeting their community service requirements in terms of their high school commitment. Right. So I'm saying all of that is because what innovation is leading to for us is to say, how do we become a solution to what our country needs, what our communities need? to what other institutions need. So mentoring is certainly a nice to do, right? It's relational, but it's also a necessity. So how do we become more of a solution to what societal needs are out there? So I always learn an incredible amount from our conversations or when I have the chance to even read something that you post on LinkedIn or listen to something else that you've done. And you're going to join us at Engage for Good in May. You're going to speak on the main stage, get a golden halo speech, and you're going to talk about a couple different things. What are you going to share? Give us a little bit of a teaser and what people might learn from sitting in that ballroom with you. 
Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I am so excited to to join Engage for Good and, and be on the main stage. I couldn't be more excited about the Golden Halo Award um, and how much that means uh, for us as an organization and to be able to elevate this work uh, in the broader community. What I'm going to talk about is really a journey. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the story of a journey. And it's going to be this journey of this organization, but I think even much more broader. I think the journey that we're all taking right now, and you know, we use this term we call it Jedi, um, right? And, and it's and for us, you know, it means being a Jedi-focused youth empowerment organization. But it really talks about the you know emanating from this idea of being an alternative innovation of the justice system when we were born to now how we create more equity for kids, how we bring diverse communities um, around to support that work to ensure that every kid feels included for opportunity and a better life, right? And what I hope that participants and, and those who are in the audience or those who are listening take from this is this idea that we're all on this journey. We're all on the journey of how do we ensure that, that our tables are more inclusive, that mm -hmm. the, the, the communities that we serve feel valued, feel like they belong, feel empowered, right? That the work that we're doing with our employees and our volunteers is much more connected and it has a, a lens of equity uh, around it. And it's not excluded for one community, right? It's not this sense of that it's only uh, one type of population that can access, that you can be in so many ways uh, and identify with populations that are different than you, people that are different than you, right? Whether that's through representation, whether that's through allyship, we all have a voice. And I, hopefully what this presentation or the sharing will do is uh, hopefully empower people to know that, inform them on what our story has been in doing that. And also really important to know that the journey is not a period. It doesn't end at right. a point. It continues. And we're all trying to continue not to be perfect, but to perfect, perfect our journey even more and more as we walk it to get better and to bring more people in. And um, I hope that that uh, when I share, people get that and they're inspired by it. I think they will be. I think I will be. <laughs> I hope so. Okay. So I want to bring it back to you as a person. Well, and I guess a little bit about your role as well, because that, that's infused in this question. Your role is a really it's a really big one. You've got big goals. You serve a large community. And I can imagine that while it's probably really interesting and exciting at times, it's probably got some challenges, too. So how do you prioritize your well-being and take care of yourself so that you can lead the organization and move this important work forward? Yeah, it's a really great question. And, and, I, and I will be very, very straightforward with you. I don't think I always get it right. right? Yeah, I don't um, either. Yeah. So I, I think I think the first Part of that, that to your question, the first answer is acknowledging that I don't always get it right um, and that we're all struggling with that. Um, and, and it's something that I continuously struggle with. I will tell you, though, where I feel I do get it right sometimes that I, it's very important to me that as I, you know, go on this journey, that, that I did not go on this journey alone. Mm -hmm. um, before I accepted this job, this was a conversation with my family, right? And we said, we said together, we're going to do this as a family. Um, so what I'm really intentional about, what my family, I should say, is really intentional about, we map out schedules of, of what we call, you know, our, our, our time off zones, right? So 
no matter what comes up, no matter what happens, these are time off zones. So is that like a vacation time off zone or like a daily, like this is dinner time, time off zone? Both. Okay. Right. So it's, 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 it's the vacation part, but it's also things that we build in ritual, that's ritualistic, right? There are certain things like my girl's birthdays, they're, they're non-negotiable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at certain times, things, you know, we're going to have this many days where we're eating at a table together, right? How we, how, how they leave for school, right? I'm always there, right, for presence. When I'm in town, it's not me being in the office when they're leaving for school. They're always going to see me. If I'm in town, they're going to see yep. me when they leave for school. You know, heck, maybe driving them to school, right? But <laughs> it, it's always going to, it's always going to be that. Um, they travel with me. That's another thing that oh. I'm able to do that has been, you know, really important. It was really important with me when I started was to say there are going to be so many trips that we, that we do, but we're going to do them together, right? So they're there. I just did uh, the ringing of the bell on the New York Stock Exchange mm-hmm. uh, at the at the end of January. Uh, my entire family was there with me, right? They were in the box with me. Uh, ringing the bell. And that was important because I wanted my family, I want my girls to, to have that experience, but I also want them there, right? I want them to see um, what it feels like, the experience, the connectivity. So that's important. And then the last thing I'll say is I got a model as well for my people, right? So because if I'm not doing it, if I'm not living it, how can I, how can I expect that they will? So when we talk about right. culture, right? So too many times, and I grew up in this environment too. Leaders will tell you what to do, but they won't do it themselves, right? So it, it's it's like an oxymoron, right? And it's the, the sense of not really being true and living to your values. So if I'm going to tell someone, hey, I really need you to take the time off. You need really need to be focused on your family. Or, hey, you don't have to always cut your uh, video screen on, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. and so... So if I'm not living that, if I'm saying, hey, every time you meet with me, I need to see you, right? Then we're not doing the right right things. Or if everything takes a phone call in a meeting versus saying, what really takes a phone call? What really takes a virtual meeting versus what is really just an email or some kind of update? Or we handle it when we just do our one-on-ones or just other some other types of meetings. Or when we say, hey, yes, use your days. If they don't see me using my days, then they're not going to respond accordingly because they're going to feel out of place, right? Because they're not seeing leadership do the same thing. Those are things that I have to model, not just for myself and not just for the balance of my family, but also for the people that are around me and the people that I lead. I love all of those. And my next question was going to be, okay, talk to me a little bit about how do you take care of your team in this way? And the this idea of kind of walking the talk and leading by example is crucial because it's one thing and it can be really easy to be like, oh, yeah, go use your vacation days. You don't have to log in after whatever time. But if your leader doesn't do that and your leader is emailing at all hours, it's a lot more difficult to have your people do that. And so for me, I think it was it might have been two years ago now I put my lunch on my calendar. It wasn't on there for a long time. And I was like, nope, this is this is actually going on my calendar. And it says lunch and walk. And there's time on Wednesdays where I've got meeting free days. I don't meet with people unless there's something that absolutely has to happen. Or on Thursday afternoons, once a week during conference season, I have these little midweek de-stress. They're 15 minute meetings that anybody can pop into if they want to. And if they don't, that's fine. And we do some sort of de-stress activity, whether it's a meditation or sharing gratitude or we say hi for five seconds and then everybody goes for a walk. And I think it's about sharing those things 
and doing them yourself as a leader so that your team can do them as well. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to give you another one, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's so, it can, people often don't maximize it enough, your travel time, right? Mm-hmm. Like people think about travel time. Of course, it is hectic, right? I travel a lot. Like a lot of other people who are probably uh, listening to this will be like, yeah, I'm on the road or I travel or I have those demands. It's not always just the sense of traveling, though. It's what are you doing sometimes on the parts of your travel where it is your time? So how do you use plane time? I always tell people, like, plane time. Because I yeah. imagine, what do, we, what do we do on the plane, right? We just It's a continuation of work, right? So, and I'm not saying that there's not time that work on a plane doesn't make sense. But are you using your time on the plane when it's just you, Right. And hopefully you don't have that person who's talking your ear the entire day. I'm not, <laughs> Put the headphones on. Yeah. But how are you using that time, right? How are you using the time that you, you get in that car, whether that car is an Uber, or, you know, a Lyft or a, a cab or whatever, or you're driving, how are you using that time? Are you using it in a way that allows you to sort of get that time and get what you need and to get your energy, right? The moments that you get back in your hotel before you fall asleep, right? How is that time? What's ritualistic in there? Are there moments and things that you do to, to get peace when you get up? Even if it's 15 minutes, right? That you find your little moments, but you you turn those things ritualistic. And that's what I've been able to sort of really try, start to focus on is that there's certain levels of ritual. It may not be the entire time that I'm right. traveling, but there's certain levels of ritual that, that I find like calming exercises, peace exercises, things that allow me to stretch, exercise, talking, walking, connecting, right? It's those types of things that you have to find in your travel and not just see travel as I'm out of the door and it's hectic, but where in my travel do I find my moments to also find my peace and my inner calm? Yeah, because if you don't center yourself and you're running a mile a minute, none of us are as effective as our job. So I fly out, well, at least at the time of recording, I fly out on Sunday to go call the show for Peer to Peer. So our sister conference will have about 600 people in D.C. And running a conference is a little bit different than attending. So in attending, it's a little bit easier. But when I'm running a conference, whether it's Peer to Peer or when you'll join us in May, I've got a couple of non-negotiables. I am going to have dinner at a normal time, even if there's work that has to happen afterwards. I'm going to meditate every day. It might be right as I fall asleep, it might be earlier, I'm also going to get out of the hotel, which can be really hard is the events people. I'm going to get out of the hotel for at least five minutes every day. Sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's less. And there's a couple others. But those are the things that are non-negotiables for me, because if I don't do them, I'm not going to do a good job at my job. And I'm also not going to be a happy person. And both of those are important. That's so true. So true. And and I couldn't agree more. And, and you found that sort of ritual for you, right? And I And I think that's so important for all of us. What do you think is one of the most important attributes that today's generation of leaders needs? We talked about one earlier. Empathy. Uh, Empathy, right? Mm -hmm. I always lead with that because I I think it's so important um, to to have. The the other one, I would say, is in, to me, I think the ability to be able to um, work across different uh, personalities, people, background this sense of connectivity, right? Uh, that I think great leaders have uh, the ability to bring people together and to, uh, bring people together around shared ideas, shared commonalities, define thematics and links uh, in the work. I think that's a powerful attribute for leaders to have. 
That's a good one. And if you, knowing who you are now and what you know today, if you could go back and talk to former artists, what's one piece of advice that you would give yourself related to kind of climbing the ranks and making it into a leadership position? Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> here's, and, and it's probably not the, the advice that most people would expect. Okay. I, I'm a true believer in things that happen in your life happen for a reason, right? You're here for the good things that happen, the things that were not so good, right? If you learn from them, that is, right? That they happen for a reason and they get you into the place where you need to go, right? When I look back on my journey, I look back on every single experience of my journey being a point that moved me from one place to another, but it was where I was supposed to be and it was where I was supposed to go. What I would tell myself is keep walking the journey, walk your Mm -hmm. walk, keep on the path that you're on, and it's going to turn out okay. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Artists, where can people learn more about you and about Big Brothers Big Sisters of America if they'd like to do that? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, go to bbbs.org. Again, that's bbbs.org. Uh, if they're interested in learning a little bit more about me, uh, I am on LinkedIn, on Artist Stevens, uh, Twitter, uh, as well as Instagram. Uh, and please feel free to follow me. And hopefully you'll uh, learn a little bit more about our organization and the great work that we're doing. Well, we will include all of that in the show notes, which you can find at engageforgood.com. Artists, thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And I love all of the different pieces and stories that you've shared with our listeners today. Thank you so much, Allie. You take care. The Engage for Good podcast is produced in partnership with True Story FM, engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Zach Nelson and Rex Banner. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we hope you'll consider doing just that for our show. But the best thing that you can do to support Engage for Good is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thank you for listening.